Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Yeah. So yeah, so raising Cain is is the is I think the one that he uh, that he made that made his name for me. Cruel ironic joke. Actually, that's a that's a thing from my youth. Can I tell you a story? Uh, yeah, tell okay, me so, a story. So I was uh, so I was uh, sixteen. It was my dad's birthday, and I was driving my girlfriend's car. And I, uh, you know, for some, I was giving her a ride somewhere. We had all gone out to dinner for my dad's birthday. I was giving her a ride somewhere. And then I, uh, I uh, was driving her home in her car. She'd loaned me her car for some reason. I was, you know, this was when you were 16 growing up, like you get your license and then you are a driver. Like there's no, there was no, you know, you have to have an adult in the car until you're, you know, whatever. Now there are all sorts of rules. And uh, so I'm driving and I, I was listening to uh, the soundtrack to the Phantom of the Opera because I was a musical nerd at 16. <laughs> so take awesome. that. Right. And I um, and so I had it uh, blasting and I was I think I was singing at the time in the car. It was like 1030 at night and I was on the highways on I-25 headed north in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And Suddenly, I look back, and there are, are police lights behind me. I was being pulled over, and I, you know, was 16, and I pulled over as an idiot 16-year-old would do. I pulled over on the left. He pulls up next to me, and he says, get over on the right. You know, there's no traffic on the road. It's, it was late, but he's screaming at me, so I pull over again on the right, uh, and, oh, and I was on a bridge. So I pulled over on the left on a bridge, extremely dangerous and stupid. So I, I, he moves me over on the right. I get out of the, he gets me out of the car and puts me in his car. And, uh, and he says, uh, yeah, starts asking me questions. He says, do you, you know how fast you were going? I said, uh, no, officer, I don't. He says, he pushes the button on his dashboard thing. It says 98.6. And he <laughs> says, fancy that. You're driving your temperature. I imagine not right now, but. <laughs> so you ever been to, you, you ever been to court, son? No, sir. Well, you're going. He says to me, so he writes me a ticket and he says, uh, he, he writes on it in the notes. He says, attitude, excellent. My Aww. attitude was excellent. Isn't that fantastic? So, uh, so anyway, I go to, go to, uh, I go to court Well, I spent the next month trying to find a way to jerry rig my, uh, my speedometer, not tell my parents keep it all a big secret and try to find a way to get out of it and say that the car was, I, there's no way I could know that I was driving so fast officer. Well, that didn't work. So I ended up going to court and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, I had lost my license. So the whole point of this is after I had lost my license, I had this core group of friends 
all drive. I would drive, you know, drive them around because I had a car when I was 16. Well, then I lost my license and couldn't drive it. And so the only people who could drive my car were my three licensed friends because we didn't sell my car. My parents didn't really have a need for it. So, uh, you know, instead of, you know, people would yell shotgun when I still had my license. Well, now my the driver's seat of the car became a seat that you could call. Right. <laughs> and so you could call either shotgun or the driver's seat, which came to be known as cruel, ironic joke. Oh, and nice. so all of us would run out of the car during those long, hot summers on our way to work or wherever we were going. And someone would yell cruel, ironic joke. <laughs> That's <laughs> the only one I couldn't yell because I could not drive. <laughs> and that See, I would have thought that shotgun would have by default been yours, at least. No, I wasn't even that. No, that's how cruel my friends were to me wow. at this point. That I became, I was also the cruel, that was my mantle, the cruel, ironic joke. I carried that for years. This is to, uh, and the, the, you know, these these guys now are, they're smart people. And they, they gave me that mantle for years. I love them dearly. Did they still call you that? <laughs> I know they carry that around. Occasionally I get these posts, these Facebook posts and. You know, they say, I, I hope with endearment they'll write me notes addressed to joke. <laughs> no, that, that, that hasn't happened in a long time. No, I, 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 I may, may carry that around. It, it's just funny to, uh, you know, it's funny to remember it. And it's mostly funny to now associate that with my impression of, uh, this, is, this is transference, I think, in psychological parlance, uh, to Brian De Palma who I consider a cruel, ironic joke in, in terms of filmmaking and then the, the, the sort of sine wave um, kind of impression of his films that I get. Some of them I really love, and then some of them are really so bad. Yeah. Uh, but I love your comparison. I love Brian De Palma like I love Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they even did a movie together, Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes, right. Which, which you know, had its moments. Yeah, I love that Brian De Palma is always playing with split screen and tools that you don't see a lot of directors playing with. He's, he does some yeah. very interesting things in his Truly. Film. And, you know, for every Raising Cane, he has a ca uh, Carlito's Way. And, you know, he's he's done some great stuff. I, Mission to Mars was horrible, but then... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Fatal, now, which, which that came out... it up with a couple years later. I thought it was just awesome. No, wait a minute. That, ca that came out... Uh, um... A funny time there were a couple of mars movies out at that same time right mission to mars and the red planet okay so mission to mars was the uh that was the gary sinise one right with tim robbins yeah Don mission Cheadle. to mars had uh right tim robbins gary sinise don Cheadle, and um you know face buried on mars giant like building that looked like a face or some crazy thing okay i didn't i, I didn't pretty, hate that i didn't hate that movie. forgettable i didn't hate that movie you didn't hate that no movie. i didn't hate it i didn't i you know i guess i didn't love it but i want to now i can't who was in the other one that was the uh the other one was uh val kilmer and uh yeah, there yeah, was yeah. like a robot dog or something <laughs> and I have to look it up now. Robot dog. It was Val Kilmer and uh, Carrie Ann Moss and Tom Sizemore. Yeah, that's right. Carrie Ann Moss. Carrie Ann yeah. Moss. Yeah. No. Okay. So I uh, I don't think I hated that one either. Uh, I actually I'm a big fan of pretty much Mars movies. <laughs> Are you? You know, people have been posting this uh, the really sad point. You know, with the passing of uh, Neil Armstrong. 
what uh, it, well it's something it, about mission to mars no well it's about the the you know it, it is quite possible that for for those of us like you and me in our lifetime that that it's quite possible that no person will be will set foot on another planet mm-hmm. you know because we're we're losing these original guys Right, right. And, uh, and you know, we've been so kind of lackluster in our pursuit of other planets that, uh, you know, is it, you know, are we really going to see, I'm, here's hoping the Chinese do something on the moon cause, so that, you know, we have something to say with that, that in our generation, a, a human set foot on another planet again, just so we don't lose that. I mean, that's our, that's. You know, I wonder if the Chinese did that. Uh, you think I they already did? start another race i i would hope uh, so what happened last time i wonder if that would spur us on to develop our space program again maybe that's what we need we need a good one we need a good competition that's what we need the market economy of the space program Mm -hmm. uh okay so that's i i say all that because i think that's what drives my love for any sort of other planet movie yeah you know no, I, I Maybe agree. there's a giant transformer. Back to, back to Brian De Palma. Yeah. I, you know, the thing about his new movie, which I guess is what spurred all of this on. Passion. Passion, which is coming out um, February, I believe, um, or maybe later this year. It, it's going back to the kind of the psychological, uh, sexual story that he did so well in like Body Double and Femme Fatale. And so I have high hopes for Passion. I shouldn't say high hopes. I should say I have hopes for passion. <laughs> I don't want to get I don't want to get too excited about uh, any Brian De Palma movie anymore. But uh, uh, I, yeah. I hope that it turns into something interesting. I do too. I do too. What was that other one that looks kind of similar? Is this one the mafia, the lesbian mafia one with? Uh, oh, what's the name? The one with the really sort of helium high voice. Uh, um, Oh, she was in uh, Bullets Over Broadway, Jennifer Tilly. Tilly, Tilly, Tilly. Uh, um, Bound. Yes, yeah, great movie. Bound. That was a that was a uh, terrific, terrific movie, and that's what I think of immediately when I think of this. Um, um, when I when I see passions, passion. Mm. Uh, that was Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon with Joe Pantoliano. Yeah, that's a great movie. That was a great movie. So that's that that's that sort of sets the bar uh for me. Like if you're going to if you're going to make uh, a uh you know uh, a lesbian murder plot, a lesbian mafia <laughs> murder plot film, that this is the bar. This was a terrific yeah. film. Well, did you see Femme Fatale? Brian De Palma's uh 2002 movie? Pro- I, I may uh, have Rebecca given... Romaine and Antonio Banderas? No, I did not. Antonio, Antonio Banderas. Uh, what would you so you uh, you like this one? You like I, d- I did. It was a it was actually a pretty interesting uh, story, and uh, I mean, I, I don't think it was you know anything to write home about, but it was a lot better than I was expecting, and so it's it's a pretty fun movie. It's definitely one worth checking out. A lot of double crosses and all that sort of stuff. I like double crosses, but uh, I, I you know honestly I maybe I just hadn't given. Uh... Rebecca Romaine, you know, when I saw Rebecca Romaine and Brian De Palma, I kind of wrote off the film. Yeah. So. No, I can understand why. But uh, check it out. It's worth All right. watching. All right. I'll add it to the list. Yeah. Um, so to, uh, let's just, uh, you, the movie we're talking about. Yes. Actually, we should do the, the contact stuff. Go ahead. 
Uh, so people can find me at, on Twitter at Soda Creek Film or on Facebook at Soda Creek Film and, of course, at rashpixel.tv slash MWL for movies we like. Yes, and uh, iTunes. Make sure to search for us oh, on yes. iTunes and you can um, um, subscribe to the show there. Make sure you don't miss a beat. Uh, send us, a, you know, the usual stuff. Send us a, a note there. Send, write us a review. That would be very helpful. Helps other people discover the show. Uh, you can find me at Pete Wright. And at rashpixel.tv as well. And tonight we are continuing our Richard Zanuck discussion with uh, Jaws. What a great movie! I can't. I, this is the first. This is our first Spielberg, right? No, it's not. We did the um, Indiana Jones series. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Except, while ago. With the exception of the first four movies we did, this is our first Spielberg. <laughs> right right huh aside from those which are easy to discount <laughs> well uh, let me say this chronologically speaking this is our first spielberg oh yeah you're right you're right uh, <laughs> um yeah oh i love this movie okay so you we should i i want to uh where do you want to start i would love to talk about uh, this movie, in the context of this other sort of meta discussion about film critique and and Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and oh, I I, okay. I bring that up in in this context particularly because uh, this is a film that you know has a perfect score on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and yeah, it's a good place to begin. Uh, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, while a great resource <laughs> to get a sense as to what critics and the general public think about a film it's also becoming a place where people are uh, just not being nice and uh, really it's it's getting harder to tell you know especially in the the section of users ratings rather than the critics ratings what uh, what the rating really is because uh, you know people are just it's it's people aren't playing nice it's become a uh, uh, a, a playground with no monitoring and so it's uh, yeah it's just it's hard to tell and I, I think it's in a way it's it's kind of giving film criticism a bad name when all of a sudden everybody can be a critic and anonymously at that yeah you know, it's there are there are two things going on here, and this is this conversation is is spurred by a um, by an, uh, a post written by Landon Palmer in the uh, Culture Warrior column over at FilmSchoolRejects.com, and the title is "Why Rotten Tomatoes is Bad for Film Criticism." And I, I, there are two things going on here. the The context of of this piece, I think, was you know Landon wrote. Uh, because at the, at the time, uh, Dark Knight Rises had just come out, and or was just coming out, and the the um, responses to the reviews were filled with such uh, unbelievable, just sort of well, uh, totally believable in the context of the internet culture, uh, hate speech. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, really calling people out quite personally, and and uh, uh, you know, for their views on on that film, which obviously are you know uh, totally unrelated. <laughs> and so, you know, the the two things going on here are, are one, uh, the tomatoes approach to 
film sort of critique i think it's a stretch to call it critique to to just sort of uh film review uh is um you know binary it either is great or it's not it's either a tomato or it's a splat yeah and and that has one effect on film criticism um but the other is you know is it possible to feel like you can give an honest critique in an environment that is fil- that is so generally hateful around any time there is a, a split on on um, the impression of a particular movie now in the case of jaws uh you know g- generally people love it uh it is a it's a terrific movie but um you know look at uh um but that's and that's also based almost exclusively on the critical the critical reviews that were done at the time back in 1975. Well, and and that's because these you know there haven't been uh, you know critical reviews of of the movie you know that's that's because that's when most of the critical reviews happened, right? And so right, exactly. You, you know, you look at I, I mean the the point in Landon's article he brought up Vertigo, which is which you know is one of those films where the the critical impression of the movie has evolved over time and and that the movie has aged you know jaws came out and was successful and has stayed successful vertigo came out and was kind of a split and has gotten more successful as people have had a chance to understand it and love it over over the years exactly right and so is rotten tomatoes a uh you know and these sort of you know metacritic and any any of these sort of um uh, aggregator tools, you know, are they useful to, um, you know, to getting a good impression of, of what a film is going to be? Uh, and is it possible to sort of be your best self as a reviewer if you're, you know, if you, if you have to put up with this kind of, uh, venom? Yeah. And the fact that, I mean, we even refer to Rotten Tomatoes and sometimes Medic on our show. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very important thing to discuss. What does it mean? Is it really, is it really saying anything valuable or is it just, is it just a, a number that really holds no ground? Okay, so I mean, you... my, my personal impression is uh, I think Rotten Tomatoes is a useful tool, but it should not be looked at as an end-all be-all. And I think what happens anytime you have tools like this is a lot of people like to look at it as an end-all be-all. They see the number, maybe they look at some of the the quotes and and it's not even the full reviews that you're getting on Rotten Tomatoes you're getting a like a one sentence synopsis of each reviewer's comments with their rating um when people start looking only at that information then it it the, the usefulness of the tool in many uh senses uh, is deflated because it's it's not doing what it's meant to do. It's the tool is meant to just give you a bird's eye view of everything, but it still is important to go in and look at what individual people thought. So and, is that? Yeah. I mean, do you find yourself using Rotten Tomatoes? Like, is this a site that you frequent personally? I mean, you see you see a lot of movies. You critique a lot of movies in the circles in which you truck, and you're in the business. Do you use Rotten Tomatoes? I I do, but like I said, it's not my end-all be-all. I will look at it just to get a sense as to what people are thinking, but I I don't stop there. I'll still go beyond that, and I'll read some reviews of some of the critics that I I feel um, I enjoy their the way that they look at films, like Roger Ebert, and um, I will 
try to get a better sense of the film itself. And, you know, sometimes whether a, a film, you know, got a splat on Rotten Tomatoes or very high marks, sometimes that just, it won't even phase me as to whether I'm going to see it or not. Um, you know, certainly, you know, unfortunately, because of the nature of having kids and family and many other responsibilities in my life now, I do find myself using it more than I used to because, you know, I, I, I do have, I, I have had to thin out the number of movies that I go see in theaters. So that's, it is a way that I end up going, well, okay, that's one that I can rent. It's, you know, it's not getting high marks. So yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's, you know, it's a, it's, it's an, I don't want to call it a necessary evil, but it's, uh, when you have as many film critics as you do out there in the world now, and it's easier and easier to become a critic, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's helpful getting a sense of the overall vibe of something, but, uh, it, it is a, a dangerous tool and you, you should be aware that you can be paying attention to people whose opinions are, are really not worth spit. I don't uh, personally use Rotten Tomatoes all that much, uh, other than the context of what we, you know, what we've talked about on the show. Sometimes I'll bring it up when we're talking about a show. In particular, I remember we talked about uh, uh, John Carter, and um, you know, weirdly, that movie aged well with me. It's at a fifty-two percent on the on the um, tomato meter, but the sort of aggregation of one-liner, um, you know. Uh, one-liner reviews, uh, and uh, you know, it is just it doesn't. It's not helpful. It it doesn't for me. It doesn't uh, you know sort of give me any any real insight onto um, you know what the movie uh, really was. Um, and and so I don't I don't know. I I feel like it does a disservice to my own interpretation of the movie. If I were to have read this, maybe I would have missed it. Uh, and uh, missed out on an, an interesting sort of visual uh, experience. Yeah. Well, so th there's definitely something to that. I mean, there is, and it's uh, it's interesting to see how things have changed since the time that Jaws was released. When really it was a lot. Uh, I mean, there was obviously critics writing reviews that were in the newspapers that were people were reading. So that's a a big source and, and it still is to this day but I mean that was really the only source for critics and television reviews and um, and then people just finding it on their own and not relying so much on probably what the critics had to say but just going out to see what everybody's talking about because of the buzz well and, and you know it's funny I uh, the, I found myself thinking the whole time I'm reading uh, Palmer's piece uh, because he's calling to the mat this sort of trend of uh, binary response to film and this either a splat or a tomato, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, that's not good for critique. And the whole time I'm thinking, well, you know, the thumbs up, thumbs down started this whole thing. This was yeah. at, at the movie's whole uh, bit with Siskel and Ebert. And, and he actually uh, finally brings that up in the last uh, paragraph of his article. Uh, of his article, In a sense, Rotten Tomatoes is an inevitable development. Gene Siskel and Rod Roger Ebert uh, gained fame outside the cinephile community because of their bi-directional thumbs. Here's the Rotten Fresh binaries prototype. And of course, the first instinct that many readers, myself included, manifest is seeking the great 
the grade a film is given, whether that be a number of stars, like this site, a letter grade, uh, but uh, above the grade or under those stars is a review with evaluation, justification, and argumentation that more often than not can't adequately fit in a blurb. What Rotten Tomatoes does is sever the content from that verdict. We shouldn't be surprised that such tendency invites thoughtful, thoughtless conversation. And I think that's what it gets to. You know, as uh, you know, at the movies with Siskel and Ebert was um, uh, an outgrowth of Ebert's already robust career with the Chicago Sun-Times as, as the film critic. And yeah. he had already written, you know, thoughtful critique. And as Landon says, uh, at the movies was for people who don't read. Right. Yeah. You know, largely, um, you know, people who, uh, you know, who are looking for a uh, the TV audience looking for a quicker uh, assessment of of contemporary film. But, but he already had the the sort of legacy of of his columns to back up his thumbs up, thumbs down interpretation of movies. Yeah. And and Rotten Tomatoes is try in in trying to aggregate all of the written word on these films, and distilling all of the written word into a binary response. I think is is uh, you know where it may be um, uh, biting off more than it can chew uh, from the perspective of criticism. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. And it's you know it's it is a kind of I guess an unfortunate outgrowth of what Rotten Tomatoes is trying to do, which, you know, I, I like, and that's why I like where I can, and honestly, I never pay attention to the user's side because I just have no faith in, <laughs> in non-critics when they're reviewing movies. Um, I, I only look at the critic side and I do try to read the reviews, um, of, of the movies when I'm interested in seeing a movie or just interested in in a, in a film in general. Hmm. And I really try to not ever just rely solely on the numbers. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting outgrowth. And honestly, I don't know how Rotten Tomatoes uh, can fix the system that they have. No, I yeah, I don't, uh, I, I don't know. It, it, fixing the system really takes it away from what the system is designed to do as an aggregator. And, and there is, you know, I'm, I'm doing it a great disservice by not being a user and trying to actually comment on it. Like I, 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 I recognize that I'm not part of the community and, and um, you know, I don't, I don't use it regularly. Um, well, but you, you do bring it up on the show and you discuss it. Uh, which, which is probably a, to movies that we talk about. So, I mean, it's, it is still a fair, a fair discussion to have. Yeah, but I, I just mean that's probably unfair of me to not be more invested. And that's, you know, it's one of the things I, I say all the time to clients. Like you can't, you know, you can't pass judgment if you're not a, an invested member of the community. And so I, you know, I think um, I'm operating at a pretty high level by passing any sort of judgment on on Rotten Tomatoes. I need to to join the community and, and you know, see if there is a wellspring of, of you know, uh, thoughtful criticism buried somewhere in here. I haven't seen it on the surface. Um, I mean, I've used so. it, I think, more than you have, and I yeah. haven't seen it at all. Um, the, like I said, the only the the only extent to which I've found that is when you can, you know, follow one of the critics' links and go to their own site and read their review. Mm -hmm. um, and in a sense, that's essentially like you were saying with with the Siskel and Ebert how they, you know, you had longer reviews on the show 
and in their own in their own um, critical writings for their uh, corresponding papers by being able to follow the links uh, to the critics reviews from Rotten Tomatoes it does give you a, a good resource to tap into all of those different reviews and try getting a sense to what everyone's thinking I just don't know how many people actually do that well that's that's really the point and that was my my point uh, you know that I didn't actually make uh, which was <laughs> fixing the system for Rotten Tomatoes ends up making it you know changing what Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes is and does I think functionally it would be a different service if they tried to quote fix it uh, I I don't know that there is necessarily a fix uh, other than uh, maybe better education as to what what role Rotten Tomatoes has in in you know getting the word out about film yeah so uh, but that takes us to Jaws, which does have a, a you know, 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It is certified fresh. Um, and uh, so that's that's where we are. Um, terrific Steven Spielberg 1975 film uh, that defined the, you know, largely defined the the modern blockbuster summer thriller. Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. And then, you know, with with uh, Star Wars a couple years later, I think that pretty much just um, made it very clear that this this blockbuster system works very well. And uh, it, that was it. <laughs> Ever since then, we've been uh, saddled for uh, for better or for worse with summer blockbuster films. Tell so you watched this weekend the uh, the 30th anniversary. Was it not? Is it? Are they calling it the 30th anniversary re-release? The Blu-ray? They have a little special feature on there talking about the restoration. Universal Studios, on celebrating their 100th anniversary this year, uh, is releasing 100 of their their, I guess you'd call them their best films or their most well-known films, uh, on Blu-ray this year to commemorate this. And 13 of those films are getting a full restoration, where they're going back to the film prints. They're uh, cleaning it up. They're they're making the audio sound fantastic. They're remixing it, doing everything they can to just really make these amazing releases. Um, they actually did it with The Sting, which we talked about last week, and they did it with Jaws, which just came out last week. And it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just a it's a gorgeous film print. Now, I will say the the uh, bit on the uh, uh, the the extras about the restoration process is a little misleading. They do make it seem like the film was just horribly, just a, a horrible, ugly mess. They show comparisons of scenes looking as bad as they could possibly look and then looking just magnificent. I just, just because I didn't remember the film looking that bad, I actually put, I had the, I believe the 25th anniversary DVD release. Uh, I put it in to compare a couple scenes and actually they don't look that bad. Um, I mean, obviously, the Blu-ray looks a lot better, much cleaner. But I, I think what they did for the the sake of the special features, they actually went and found the worst any any given scene actually looked in all of the archival film prints that they had, so that they could show a bigger difference from look how bad the scene looked to look how good it looks now. Um, so it's a little misleading, but that being said, I mean, it is just a gorgeous looking film. Well, really I, great. I, the, the thing I was interested in is the, um, you know, is their remastering of the sound because that's, yeah. that took a, they, they gave that a full treatment. How, what did you, uh, what was your impression of the sound? It's, I mean, it just, it sounds really good. I mean, honestly, the film 
looks and sounds as if it could have been shot, you know, any time in the last couple of years. It's just, it's beautiful. It sounds amazing. If it wasn't for the dated hairstyles, I mean, it really could have been. It yeah. really could have passed for a, a modern film. Or, so. or or a, a um, you know, I the way I, I look at it is, uh, you know, I compare it to, um, you know, the look of, um, uh, you know, come on, the murder one, uh, San Francisco murder one we already did. San Francisco murder one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zodiac. Zodiac. You know, it, it is, it, it sort of is, uh, it, it is shot to look like a film in that era. And Jaws, even though it was shot then, looks like somebody may have gone back to try to make <laughs> made it today and tried to make it look like it, it did in the uh, in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, uh, and a period piece. Uh, I did not see, watch the Blu-ray. Um, you know, I'm <clears throat> saddled with uh, no giant screen and, and Blu-ray player. I do just about everything online. And so, you know, I picked up the, um, you know, the HD version of the film, through iTunes and, uh, and watched it, uh, you know, so I got the HD treatment, but I think it was essentially the 25th anniversary, you know, version of it. And, mm. and it was, you know, it, it felt notably better than I remember it. Uh, but I don't, like you said, I don't remember the, you know, the old, gosh, the, the version I had before that was on VHS. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't remember that looking that bad. Um, what I was particularly moved by was just the the color and uh, of the film. I remember it sort of feeling much more washed out, and and this looked so, um, you know, brilliant and bright, and um, you know, the lighting was really quite stunning. Well, that's that's something that Spielberg did because he supervised the work that they did on the Blu-ray. He really worked with a lot of the scenes where some of the lighting had never really quite matched like the opening sequence where uh where Chrissy gets mm -hmm. eaten the first victim um that was all shot day for night and that was something that i noticed watching on the dvd and then watching on the blu-ray is he just really worked a lot more to make those scenes feel a little uh, like it, it felt like right because you can still see the sun in the shots, so mm -hmm. it's clearly not nighttime, but it's like just after the sun comes up or just after the sun is is uh, or about to go to. I don't know how long those kids are out. I guess it could be sunrise or sunset, but um, he really did work to make those scenes look a lot more um, like it's it's just right in that in that magic hour, and so those look a lot better. It doesn't look quite so. Um, uh, the colors don't look so mushy and and gloomy. So, um, I mean, it's mm -hmm. a great it's a great looking film. It is a great looking film. All right. So, uh, what what stands out in in watching this film this weekend? What stands out to you? Why do we Why do we love this movie? Well, why why there's there's so many reasons to love this movie. I mean this this was a film that I think everybody who's seen it can probably remember the first time they saw it uh, it's it stands out so well it's so scary especially if you saw it at a young age um or just anybody who ever has gone into the ocean the thing about this movie is and, and you know everybody uh probably has a story about not 
going into the ocean after watching this movie, not wanting to take a bath after watching this movie, <laughs> not wanting to jump into a swimming pool after watching this movie. I had nightmares for a long time about sharks in, in swimming pools, like any body of water uh, that I would go into. Completely nonsensical fear. There's right. no way a great white shark could get into my bathtub or a swimming pool. <laughs> Yet I was still terrified that somehow that drain was just the right size for it to come up and get me. I mean, it's it's so silly. But those are the sorts of uh, the dreams and, and visions that people had after watching this movie. And they wouldn't go into the ocean. And it did affect uh, people wanting to get into the water. That's power. I mean, that's an amazing ability to uh, make a film that makes people not want to go swimming. And for me, that's that always will stand out as, as the uh, some of my early memories of this film. Carl Gottlieb uh, said he was uh, one of the credited writers on the film and also plays the mayor's PR man uh, in the in the uh, movie, um, said in a uh, in a conversation with Spielberg when he was brought on board, he said, you know, we have a chance to make a movie that makes people scared to go in the ocean. <laughs> we we have the the opportunity to make a movie that's that's that big. And and he said, you know, of all the things that we tried to do and didn't, that's the thing that persists even today. When I hear people talk about that this movie, he says, they tell me that because of us, they're scared to go in the water. Here, yeah. you know, 37 years later. That is amazing power. It really is. It really is. And and so much so that Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel that the movie was based on, um, years later, he ended up joining up with a, um, I can't remember the organization, but basically a kind of an ocean preservation sort of an organization. And really felt that, he, he kind of felt guilty that he had written this novel that made people so afraid of water and misunderstand sharks. He, he actually later came out saying that he was, uh, he felt right. He wished that he had never written jaws because he, he felt that it put people's opinions of sharks set, set it back by, by, you know, a very long time, like decades, centuries as to what people used to think of sharks and where we should be with the scientific understanding of sharks. And he really felt guilty for that. And um, <laughs> I could see why. I mean, everybody just that when they when they think of sharks, probably the first thing they think of is man eater and, you know, attacks on the beach and all this sort of stuff. You know, it's, that, uh, that's you know, a sad truth, I guess. That is true. You posted uh, a 1975 uh, poster, a Jaws poster on on our on the Movies We Like poster collection on Pinterest. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was the uh, Just the Facts poster. A great poster. Which was a great poster. I don't know if you saw uh, on Facebook. I, I, you know, shared that to my own timeline. And on Facebook, a, um, a Diane Andresic writes, uh, as a scuba diver, I think the poster is one-sided. Sharks are not the enemy. They do not crawl up on the beach to attack humans. They do not rape us. They do not rob our banks. They are not serial killers bursting into movie theaters, guns blazing. Instead, we invade their habitat. And when they attack us, uh, thinking we are just another... Uh, just another meal, heaven forbid, all the other animal world doesn't recognize us uh, for the godlike creatures we think we are. And she she goes on and she's, you know, writes about the cultural implications of this mindset, uh, which are all sort of great points. 
sharks do not rob banks. Um, and, you know, we, we are sort of in their habitat. But this was a movie whose function was not to, um, was not to present a, you know, uh, multifaceted review of the life and times of a sh- of the shark. It was to talk about a shark, uh, and and one of the things I kept finding, when, to your point specifically about Peter Benchley, is that you know, gosh, I, I, I'm sorry I gave people this one sided review of sharks, but the script itself deals with this a number of times uh, through the movie itself. Uh, Brody asks, "Have you ever seen a shark do this?" No, I have not. This is not. Some, this is a different shark. This is a monster shark. It mm-hmm. is a giant shark that is somehow psychologically deficient uh, compared to the way other sharks think. And it did what it exactly what it was supposed to do. It terrified us because of the anomaly that this shark represented. Yeah, it's the one-off shark, and and the movie did a great job. Yeah, it, it's a it's a monster movie. Just because the monster happens to be a real animal that, for the purposes of the movie, is you know more than twice the size what most of these animals happen to be, you know, people did look at it a little unrealistically. Right, right. They they did because because that's what terror does. It makes us look by extension, uh, or it makes us look by extrapolation uh, yeah. at at our lives. And but. Even still, this movie, where it functions so well, when you think about the the scoreboard, right? Okay. So uh, Chrissy gets it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's there's one. Yeah. The next person that the shark kills, because we have Pippet, who goes missing first, uh, the dog. But the next... After, after Chrissy, right. After Chrissy. So, so Chrissy, then Pippet, and then the Kintner boy. Yep. That... Uh, I wonder, I, I mean, that was a really brave play in the script, right? To to make the 12-year-old boy the next one to get killed. Don't you think? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's... It drives up that terror because our emotional connection is naturally stronger to children. And what they end up doing, even though the first one was a night swimmer who was drunk and could have just as easily been a powerboat, though obviously it was not by looking at the remains, they had a shark kill a boy. Yeah. We don't, we don't do that. That's not something we're accustomed to seeing is, is killing kids in, in that sort of a scenario. And I think that was, that was shocking because it's one of those things that you, you look at and you think by extrapolation, if it can happen to this 12 year old, which it should never have happened to, it could happen to anyone. Well, and that plays into the nature and you're right. I mean, killing off a a 12 year old kid in a, in a movie is just an absolutely horrible thing to do, but it does play up to the realities of nature. Right. This, This shark is just swimming around. It doesn't pick off specifically the 12-year-old kid because, boy, I just love eating 12-year-old kids. It's just picking off whoever happens to be closest to it. The that, one that looks you know, like looks a seal. Isolated, and it happens to be a 12-year-old kid. It's the nature of the beast. And it's actually an interesting an interesting point that um, uh, Zanuck and Brown used to their defense when, when, when wanting to get a PG rating for this film, which they did get. They said, this is not any different than a National Geographic nature video. This is a film about an animal that happens to you know, be attacking people. It's, we're not showing anything that you wouldn't see on any other uh, you know, 
film about nature and animals attacking each other. Mm-hmm. And because of that justification, they did manage to get the PG rating for the film. And and by any extent, uh, most other films that were coming out at this time that had so much, you know, carnage probably would be getting an R rating. Absolutely. Uh, because what they did was make a National Geographic documentary with an unbelievably haunting score and, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of off angles and uh, and a, a, a brilliantly uh, anxiety ridden police chief <laughs> kind of trying to orchestrate it all, not to mention the sociopath fish hunter. Uh, like these are, these are things that serve to sensationalize this National Geographic aesthetic that they had created. <laughs> you know, I really that's the argument you're going to carry. So I but I I totally agree. I think that what is all of those things make this even even you know more haunting and and bring that emotional connection to every um every one of the deaths in the film and there aren't very many uh by comparison. I mean, so I I wonder if you know if it would be possible to run a comparison tally between uh, Jaws, 1975, and Piranha 3D. Right. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it would. I can't count that high on Piranha 3D. But in this movie, we've got um, you know the Kintner boy and Chrissy and the fisherman, and uh, there's another fish. I think it's just one fisherman in the boat they discover at night. And uh, um, and then. Well, that's Ben Gardner. Ben, yeah, ben Gardner's Gardner boat. Oh, ben Gardner's boat, and then, and then Quint, and and Quint, and that's five people in the course of this movie. And you would think that that the shark, uh, you know, well, you'd think the shark had gone on a piranha three uh, piranha three D style killing spree. Yeah. Uh, six but people though. Six people. Okay. Who? Uh, yeah. Six people. Chrissy, Chrissy, the Kintner boy, Ben Gardner, who we see off screen. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, I guess I'm counting Pippet. Pippet um the the fisherman and then quint see pippet i would put in the uh uh in on the same scoreboard with the dock the ben gardner's boat like the inanimate <laughs> objects destroyed by by the shark <laughs> uh but all serve to uh, to illustrate the elegance of the horror feel of this movie without uh, illustrating really the the um, the, the grotesquery of the horror that that is not on display in this movie. This is not a particularly grotesque film until the very end of the third act. Obviously, when uh, generally the film is is shocking in its restraint. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, smartly written story and. A smartly made film and i think you know speaking to that a lot of it has to do with the production of the film uh i mean not so much the the deaths themselves i, I mean obviously that was just how the story was written but the restraint that they had in even just showing the shark uh, i mean the thing about jaws first off is its production has been um told time and time again it's probably one of the first films that had as much of its production um, out to the public as uh, more than any other film up to that point. Um, Carl Gottlieb, I think shortly after the release of the film, wrote a, a fantastic book called The Jaws Log that it chronicles the production of the film, the troubles that went into it and everything. And then, you know, with the documentaries that have been made, I mean, everybody knows about the troubles that went into making this film. 
And the troubles with the shark in particular, the the mechanical shark that they had, nicknamed Bruce, kept them from showing the shark as much as they did. And now we see that as just an amazing restraint, the fact that we don't see the shark as much, and it actually makes it that much more terrifying when all we see are these tanks you know, moving around on the surface of the water, or we just we see kind of that POV shot under the water as the shark is moving under these people. I mean, it it works so much better that way, and I, I think that adds to this feeling that we have that pairs with as few deaths of, as we have in the film. That sense really pairs with that to make just a stellar horror film spielberg said uh in an interview i mean he was 26 years old when he made this movie it's uh, you know it's almost a, a kind of preternatural ability to be invested in film at that age to be able to come up with a movie like this and and uh you know his his insight at the at the time was you know i think uh 50 of a director's job is in getting the right cast and uh, in this movie in particular, when you look at um, uh, at these three guys, right, the the um, you know, the relationships between Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus, in terms of what it means, what their role is in making the horror line work or the thriller line work is their unbelievable talent at looking terrified. Mm-hmm. At, at terrified at nothing you know at their their performances uh to be able to react to this to this thing they cannot see to these you know the the terror of these barrels is um uh, is fantastic there is just not a better performance uh, uh you know a better collective performance at, at looking scared than the one defined in this movie well and we've you know, we've talked about Roy Scheider before. I mean, and how what a great decade it was yeah. for Roy Scheider in film. I mean, man, he just, you know, from coming off of the French Connection and Clute going into this, you know, he had Marathon Man, he had all that jazz, he had Sorcerer, so many, so many great movies he did that uh, in the 70s. I mean, and having this right in the middle, I think just you you can't go wrong. Uh, you know, he just he really, really had a great decade and and did some stellar films. And you can see the quality of his performances all through that that ten years, and how good he is. And in Jaws, boy, I mean, he interestingly enough playing off of kind of the the cop character that he had in French Connection, and how that character. Uh, that kind of New York City cop who's kind of left the city and has now um, trying to find a, a quieter life out on this little island, Amity, and how really his fear of the ocean and his love for his family and all of that comes through so well every time in him. He doesn't want to go out on the water. He's terrified when uh, the night scene, when it's just him and Richard Dreyfus on the boat, and and Dreyfus jumps in the water to scuba dive down to the bottom of Ben Gardner's boat, mm-hmm. and he's just up there on the top. I mean, it's 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 terrifying. You're right there with him the whole time. It it's uh, so the uh, the most memorable moment of moments of this movie for you, like when when somebody says, you know, what's the first thing you remember about Jaws? Well, I think the moment that is probably most talked about uh, because it just works so well is the moment when when Brody is is chumming 
on the back of the boat and, you know, grumbling under his breath about Quint and the shark pops up and, and he sees the shark and it's the first time they've actually seen the shark. Mm -hmm. And it's a scary, scary moment. You see how big this shark is and it's right off the back of the boat. And if that, I mean, that's just one of the biggest jump moments ever. And then he comes, he backs up and his just famous line, you're going to need a bigger boat. Mm-hmm. That to me is, is the moment that sticks out more than any other in this film. Yeah, you know that that moment is funny to me when I uh, saw it again. They, the reason it works, you know, particularly well for me is that there is is the way they use the sound uh, for that movie, and and it's something you don't. I, I don't think you really think about in a monster quote monster movie is, mm-hmm. is that uh, sharks don't roar, you know, they don't scream boo. Right. So all you hear there is the chumming and and Brody's swearing kind of under his breath, and then the shark just sort of emerges from the yeah. water, and it's like a yawn. You know, it's yeah. like okay, yeah, I'll eat this, thanks. You know, kind of a thing. But it's that when they look at each other eye to eye, and that quick jump cut as Brody stands up and he sort of fills the frame in terror, responding to this fish that has just appeared. Uh, it works so so well. There's there is nothing more shocking than the movement of the camera, and and it doesn't rely on a quick boo, uh, kind of a boom, uh, in the audio track. Well, and the other thing that Spielberg really planned smartly at that moment was by having Brody kind of grumbling under his breath and swearing at Quint and all that stuff, and while he's chumming, everybody in the audience is laughing because mm-hmm. he's cre- it's a very funny moment, and so he he creates this laugh moment, which turns into the scare as soon as that shark pops up, and right. that transition from laugh to scare works so well, and I think that's the other reason why it stands out so well. Absolutely. Uh, what's interesting for me is, uh, you know, the more I see this film, the more I find myself loving different elements of it. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are three that really stand out for me. And I think I've talked about this, this one before, which I think is one of the best, this, the single best moments in film. If we're talking about just sort of rating individual moments, it is, um, it, it's the, the sequence at, at dinner. Um, you know, as as Brody and his son have finished dinner and his son is yeah. sitting next to him, you know, and they start making faces at each other. And he says, he, he after a few minutes of this silent sort of mimicry, he says, give us a kiss. And the son says, why? And he says, because I need it, you know, and that's, yeah. that, that is a, a unbelievable, just sort of unbelievably sensitive moment right in the heart of this terrifying film uh, that shows the humanity in a straight line adventure movie that that I don't think is, you know, has been as well executed since. Um, the, the second is uh, the, uh, the, the come to Jesus moment in the hospital uh, after the, uh, the attack of the shark in the pool, in the pond. Uh, and, and this was a moment that I had forgotten in the movie, it just sort of always blazed by me mm-hmm. uh, when um, you know when Brody says you're going to do what you should have always done, which is you're going to sign this requisition so I can hire somebody to kill this fish. And the mayor is clearly in shock, yeah, and can't function. And Brody kind of pushes him through in this uh, anxiety-ridden sort of um, fit, pushes him through the moment to sign the sheet. So that they can get to work in the second half of the play, of the film and yeah. actually kill the shark. And the final one to, is is I think um, you know uh, uh, at the very top of uh, again of these guys' performances is on the boat when they're um, you know reviewing uh, their injuries and 
and Robert Shaw gets his, the you know, the monologue of the century uh, as he is telling the story of the Indianapolis, uh, yeah. which, so, I mean, it chokes yeah. me up every time. It's, it's a great, great uh, moment. And I just, I love the whole speech. It's a fantastic speech. And it has stood the test of time as one of the just all-time great movie speeches. Uh, there are people who can quote that. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so well written. And interestingly enough, that was actually, um, Howard Sackler uh, came on board to do some uncredited rewrites um, throughout, uh, or at the beginning of the project, after, after um, uh, the original script was written, and then Spielberg had contributed some ideas. Howard Sackler came on to do a, a few ideas. Howard Sackler came up with this idea, just a very brief bit. And then Spielberg went to um, his buddy, um, I believe it was Michael Cimino, uh, who he talked to next. And um, Michael actually wrote the, the speech. And it was like a five to ten page speech. It was a very, very long speech. And then Robert Shaw, who actually is a, a writer in his own right, he was just like, I can't, this is way too long. I, I can't go on for this long with this speech. So he actually took it. He asked uh, Spielberg if he could do some rewrites of his own on it. He actually shortened it down to the speech that we have today. So uh, it, the, the transition uh, is absolutely elegant on his part from mm -hmm. the table conversation. This is another beat that I hadn't, I hadn't noticed, but it, it shows such an, um, it, it, I think illustrates what the, you know, the real, um, heart of the movie is. And that is the relationship between these three guys. And it's the first time that, that you actually have an interaction with Robert Shaw and, um, uh, with, you know, between Quint and, um, um, ah, she broke, what's his name? Ah, uh, say, I don't have it in front of me. I've moved on. Quint, Quint uh, and, uh, and Brody? And bro, uh, no, and, uh, uh, um, yeah, the little guy. What's his name? Oh, Mike Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. All right, there, my wrong tab. Uh, okay, so yeah. between Quint <laughs> and the little guy, that's horrible. Uh, and Richard <laughs> Dreyfus, uh, that I think is really so special. It's when, you know, Dreyfus is laughing, right? Uh, Hooper, his uh, character is right, just right. in hysterics. And Quint, for the first time, illustrating a, a, I think, a deep humanity, puts one hand on his forehead and the other hand on Hooper's shoulder uh, and, and, you know, in attempt to say, you know, get, get ready. Cause I'm going to show you that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a different kind of man right now. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do something that I don't do very often. And, and that transition is, uh, it's just heart wrenching. Uh, and I, and I think that gets to, as I was saying, the, the real sort of heart of the movie is that it's not about the shark at all. Um, you know, this is a, a journey of these three guys kind of, uh, overcoming this in, incredible obstacle. And, and the heart of the movie is, is, um, you know, is about them, um, you know, learning to, um, come to terms with how they relate with one another. Uh, and, and the shark is, is a MacGuffin only until it eats, starts eating them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it's a, it, their relationship on the boat is really fascinating and watching from the start when they, there's a lot of tension and, and argument between them as that develops to um, understanding and mutual respect and uh, they really start working together and 
come together as a team. And by doing so, that's that is essentially how they're able to finally, um, you know, I guess I guess get far enough to the point where they're able to finally get the shark, even though the shark by that point has pretty much sunk the boat and <laughs> right. made a mess of things for them. Really, really made a mess of things. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you can tell like when when Quint is looking at the uh, the shark cage that uh, that Hooper brings on board. You know, his his comments about the shark cage are great. You know, just yeah, com- he has complete. He thinks that Hooper is just a loon yeah. for putting himself into this thing with the shark in the water. Yeah. It's great. Cage goes in the water. You go in the water. Sharks, sharks in, the in the water. water. Our sharks <laughs> in the water. <laughs> he walks away. She starts singing his songs again. Oh, that's it, good stuff. It is really good stuff. Um, you know, one of the interesting uh, things that I, I find with the sound, you know, we've talked about the um, the sound uh, of, um, in particular, Pakula's movies, Clute uh, mm-hmm. and Parallax View. Uh, that's that's another tool that I think is really well done here, uh, which is the the crowd walla. Uh, there are so many scenes of the angry mob where it's all improvised and there are select lines that are really artfully audible uh, as they're walking along with Doc, the chaos of getting all these guys out of the out onto the water so they don't kill themselves uh, and the the craziness on the water as they're trying to you know drop dynamite into the ocean and and kill the shark and compete for this three thousand dollars um just in general the way they portray this town of amity through sound i think is really beautifully done well and i and speaking to that i think one of the best uh examples for me is another great scene it's the beach scene when after Brody is now aware that there's a shark out there and he does he wants to close the beaches but the mayor kind of forces his hand and, and makes him keep the beaches open all these people are having a great time and it, that fantastic cutting that Spielberg does as Brody is so nervously watching all of these people out on the ocean knowing that there could be a shark under them or he knows that there could be a shark under them none of them do and the the way that it's cuts as you know, we have all the people wiping in front of him between him and the ocean. We're getting this, the fantastic cuts and, and all the sounds of everything from like all of a sudden a girl starts screaming and he kind of jumps up and you see, oh, it's just a girl having fun with her boyfriend. And all the amazing sounds as people come up and start talking to him and you're paying attention to them talking, but you're also listening to all these other sounds on the beach that he's paying attention to all the way leading up to of course, the amazing sound of John Williams' score under the water as the shark approaches and attacks the Kintner boy, mm-hmm. which leads up to great one of the one of the other most amazing shots of the film, the you know the vertigo shot that Hitchcock does um, in in back in Vertigo that Spielberg uses to great effect here as we push in on Brody while we're zooming out. I think I have that right. Are we pushing in? I think we're pushing in on him as we zoom out. Yes. And fill the frame with Brody's face, really kind of expanding his world as he sees Kinder Boy get eaten. Right. As the background sort of moves further and further mm-hmm. away. Yeah. Uh, is, yeah, that's an extremely powerful uh, use of that uh, particular trope. Yeah. But, and aside from the amazing cinematography done here, um, I, you know, by, I think Bill Butler shot the film, the, sound like you were saying is so 
sharp in that scene. All of the beach sounds just work so well and really add to the tension that Brody is feeling at that, like the whole time. Yes. I, you know, and, and what's interesting about that, uh, the, uh, uh, the score in particular, uh, which I find interesting that the main theme, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever it is, 16 the, bars, the, 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 16 the, 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 bars the, the, of the main theme, right? Yep. Is, is that sort of haunting baseline. The rest of the score is not all that menacing. It's, you know, flutes and high strings and, uh, it's, it is a beautiful John Williams score, but it's not that menacing when they, when the, sh- it's the shark's theme that is menacing. The rest of the film is just, or the rest of the score is just brilliantly suspenseful, um, suspenseful music. It's not, you know, it's, it's not as if the score itself is out to make you jump with the exception of that sort of 16 bar shark theme. And I think that John Williams actually said when he was talking to Spielberg, you know, he he saw the story as kind of like a a, a pirate adventure story, and right. it does have that sort of feel that it, it it's a very um, adventurous tone that you have, like when they're when they're chasing the barrels through the water or any of the the moments when you're following these three guys it, it's great music and it's amazing how well that shark theme fits into any of those other themes you can mm-hmm. have the great theme happening um, out while they're up on the ocean but you can also have that shark theme underneath it right right it was brilliant it was yeah. really brilliant it's br- brilliant in its primitive simplicity so this movie uh let's run through the stats yay this movie cost, uh, from what I'm looking at, it cost about $12 million to make uh, with a Princeton advertising budget of uh, $4 million. And it did pretty well for itself, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Uh, as we said, this film was uh, really the first big summer blockbuster, and it went on to just make tons of money. Domestically, uh, $260 million. Internationally, Two hundred ten million seven hundred thousand. So worldwide, uh, almost four hundred seventy-one million dollars did really well. In fact, this film, at the time, I think it was what the the number one uh, highest ra- rated or highest grossing film. It's now, if you look at, uh, if you adjust for ticket price inflation, Jaws is still number seven on the list of the the. Uh, domestic gross <laughs> amazing so, well beating it, avatar you know that's a that's a the the i think we we'd already talked about sort of what this film uh did to establish the summer blockbuster but but the calculus that goes into that is is of note uh that this was uh a very wide release for the time that for the time yeah for, for the time it was released in i think it was 400 uh, how many? Four hundred, four hundred fifty screens. Nine, four hundred nine screens. Oh, I have over four hundred fifty. Well, it started at four hundred nine the first couple weeks. Um, I think um, in week uh, four it went up to four hundred sixty four. Eventually, it got as high as nine hundred fifty four screens. But uh, Which it is... started at four hundred nine, and in the first three days of its release, it made seven point seven million dollars. That was a per theater average of nineteen thousand dollars, which are, uh, was uh, 
quite a lot of money per uh, yeah, screen. Yeah, so. that is a it, it you know given ticket prices at the time, and I mean that's an extensive release uh, for for a summer film, and that's that is a, a pivot point that was really cemented in '77 with Star Wars, and and um, uh, so it, it's it's a fascinating kind of exercise in in the transition or the transformation of the film business as a result of this story. Yeah. The it, other thing it that really was it, it showed them that if they had a fun movie that um, really got the audience involved, it would really just take off at the box office and make oodles of money. It was also a great opportunity for them to really look at doing tie-ins. And this movie had tons of tie-ins. I mean, it had, you know, clothing. It had necklaces of shark tooth, shark teeth that you could buy. Mm -hmm. It had uh, just, it had little shark figurines. It, there were so many things that you could get that were related to this movie back then. Um, not to mention that Universal Studios, a few years, uh, I think actually less than a year after it opened, they made the shark attraction at Universal Studios. Which is fantastic. Have you been on it? I have been on it. I know they've uh, modified it over the years. I've been on it both at uh, Universal Studios in uh, in Hollywood and also out in Florida. Yeah. I love that ride. It's not the same ride as it was when I was a kid, I know, but man, that shark scared the crap out of me. The <laughs> other the other interesting thing is that the very first uh, uh, North American uh, Laserdisc uh, was Jaws in 1978. Wow. That's yeah, and it was released again in 1992, uh, and uh, once again in 1995, uh, which was the f the uh, first that included outtakes and deleted scenes and the the documentary that is still carried on the film, uh, the special edition versions of the film. Well, it's yeah, you have to watch out because um, what's his name, Laurent uh, Laurent Laurent Bozero whatever it is, um, fantastic film documentary and he's made some amazing documentary documentaries about movies and their production um he made an amazing two-hour documentary about the making of jaws which for some reason they released it on the laser disc and then when they released it on the dvd the studio hacked it down to a one-hour version and until the blu-ray came out um, I it was uh, it they had only been releasing the one hour version. So the DVD version that I had only had the one hour uh, cut of his documentary. So it was nice to actually see his two hour one. Well, and I would I add, didn't have it on Laserdisc. The uh, the iTunes version of the film includes the two hour version of the documentary. Nice. Yeah. So I I was actually I on that point I was really I was thrilled because uh, yeah. I I had seen the one hour, but there's a lot of good stuff in the two hour. Um. Yeah, this was a this was a great movie. What do you uh, how how would you? Uh, I have one more comment, and and then I'm finished. So okay, how would you do like your to, comment? Okay, all right. My comment is this: something that you and I cannot, uh, I would I would wager, really wrap our heads around. That I don't remember a time where a single word does not connote such horror as the word Jaws. Yeah. And that for people prior to 1975, the word Jaws was not yet scary. Yeah. It was just, uh, a, you know, a, a bit of anatomy. And that is a very strange thing to for me to wrap my head around, that what they did with this movie is change the vernacular of a, of a single word 
with this movie for vast stretches of the population for a generation that that this movie means something different that word means something different as a result of this film and i think that's that's a pretty special thing it is spielberg even commented on that um how when he saw the manuscript he's just like what is this a movie about a dentist (laughs) (laughs) which is awesome funny because it really didn't have any meaning yeah yeah. So it's it's amazing how a story or a film or something can change a word like that. Right, right. Yeah, because now think of how somebody says Jaws in relation to something. You're instantly thinking of, of you know, what they're, what sort of metaphor they're using that involves a shark. Right, <laughs> right. And only secondarily to a giant with uh, gold teeth. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> somebody oh, yeah. the, 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 the medical jaws. the medical so this was um so zanuck and brown uh after the success of the sting um you know they they did a few other films one of which was steven spielberg's first film the sugarland express and after you know after that film was critically praised at con and everything it didn't do as well box office wise but they 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 liked spielberg they knew he could do good stuff with films and after a few other, uh, they they got the rights to the book. And after a few other directors um, passed uh, their way that they talked to, uh, they decided to give it to Spielberg. And I think um, they again, this speaks to the the insight that Zanuck has in in making films and understanding the business and he and, and understanding talent. And they saw Spielberg's talent with Sugarland Express and. Uh, and obviously, they had seen the previous uh, TV films he had made, like Duel, and they put their trust in him. I mean, essentially, this was, I guess, for in, all intents and purposes, kind of an indie filmmaker. And there, you know, what you see nowadays is is the same equivalent of of a studio taking an indie filmmaker and trying to get them to direct a big blockbuster. Sometimes it works, sometimes it dis- didn't. Uh, for Spielberg. You know, it worked out very well, even though the film went over budget. It went, um, it shot for much longer because of all these troubles that they had. I think they were shooting in Martha's Vineyard for for nearly six months. And uh, and then they, they had to still go back to L.A. to finish some shooting out there. So it went over budget. It, uh, it went way over on its shooting days. And they didn't meet the marks that they wanted to as far as getting it, uh, getting it made. But... You know, they trusted in Spielberg even when Spielberg wanted to quit because he was convinced that they were going to fire him for for taking as long as he was. He was going to quit, and Zanuck came out and and told him, you know, you're the man. You need to finish this, and and he did. And I mean, proof is in the pudding. One of the greatest films made. One of the greatest films made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do we go from here next week? Next week on our uh, on our journey through Zanuck's uh, chronology, we're taking a big jump in time, and we're going all the way to 1989 with uh, the film that he and his wife at the time, uh, uh, Lily Finney Zanuck, uh, that they produced with David Brown. Uh, we're going to Driving Miss Daisy, 1989, a film that uh, you know has has as probably as many detractors as it does fans so it'll be an interesting one to talk about i i really enjoy driving miss daisy i you know i do too although it's hard to think about it anymore because i keep wanting you know morgan freeman to to say oh, miss daisy this car is sponsored by visa <laughs> the thing that i always think about with driving miss daisy is 
for some reason, when when this was nominated for Best Picture, um, and this was one of Billy Crystal's Oscars that or Oscar shows that he was hosting. Right. And the song that he sings about driving Miss Daisy to this day has stuck in my head, and I still will you find will you sing it next singing week? Singing his little driving Miss Daisy song. You do it. You're so. gonna have to do it next next week. So you're gonna have to work that up. Okay. Uh, I'll have okay. to, and I'll have to find Billy Crystal's version because it's <laughs> bound to be better than mine. Awesome. <laughs> Andrew, well, sir. In the immortal words of, uh, of Quint, here's to swimming with bow-legged women. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.